0: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to episode three of In the Shadows, an immigration policy podcast where we shed light on a system failing in the shadows.
1: This episode discusses domestic violence as a basis for an asylum claim for immigrants who fled abusive situations in their home country. We will address the challenges in making and succeeding on these claims, as well as the policy issues concerned with these types of claims.
0: This week, we have Judge Stephen Morley, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about um, his work in immigration court um, and domestic violence as it relates to asylum claims, so welcome.
2: Thank you for inviting me. I'm pleased to be here.
0: Great, so do you just want to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about sure. your career? I know there's been
2: My a career, lot. Be- because I um, have been around a while, and my career is kind of long, so we don't want to take up the whole time. <laughs> um, I started um, in Philadelphia as a public defender, both in the state office and then moved over to the federal court division. And back then, the uh, federal court division had, I think, eight lawyers and a few staff. Now it's a behemoth doing lots of great work. Um, Then I went into private practice focusing mostly on immigration and criminal defense. And uh, over time, the uh, immigration work um, became larger and the criminal defense work became less. Um, And I enjoyed the immigration work maybe a bit more. And so I kept toiling in those vineyards. Um, got a chance to argue a case before the United States Supreme Court um, in the fall of 1998. That was a criminal case, um, uh, the right uh, the right to remain silent at sentencing under the Fifth Amendment. Um, argued a lot of immigration cases as well as some criminal cases in the appellate federal courts, as well as some before the... Um, state courts, and and went through a couple of different partnerships, and eventually, in 2010, uh, secured a position as an immigration judge here in Philadelphia, Um, and this was an opportunity for me to um, be on the bench, to make rulings, to address sometimes complex questions of law, uh, to address Uh, the issues that uh, people bring to immigration court with the understanding and the knowledge that I had that um, the immigration court side of immigration, while it is the one that maybe most people are familiar with, is actually just kind of one sliver of all that encompasses immigration law. And when I was in practice, I really practiced all the areas, that is the business immigration, the family-based, naturalization. Uh, all of that uh, before administrative agencies. Uh, but I enjoyed my time on the on the immigration court. And after not quite 12 years, I decided to retire uh, from the court. Uh, I'm associated with a firm, immigration firm in Philadelphia, Landau, Hess, Simon Choi, and Dobley. And I work some there, uh, but uh, mostly uh, enjoy a more, much more flexible lifestyle than the court afforded me uh, for those last 12 years.
0: Yeah, for sure. I can imagine. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, what, it sounds like you've had a lot of experience working in like public interest. What kind of drew you to that area of the law over any other area?
2: I think I started off uh, my life thinking in terms of. Public interest um, and never really never envisioned myself going into private practice at all. Um, and that's somewhat a product of personal background. And, and when I grew up, I grew up in the 60s, and the commitment of my, gener- my era, my generation at that time, had a lot of people who were viewed, who viewed um, government as the solution. A government can make people's lives better and I really believed that if I could be involved in some way uh, that I would help to make people's lives better. Um, I know that that's not a very popular view in certain circles these days uh, but it is a view that I continue to hold and then some of that stems from my personal background which is my parents were uh, refugees from um, Nazi Germany and so um, I took to heart the need to be committed to other people um, as a guiding principle in my life. Um, having grown up in the household where uh, one can see what happens when people don't have that commitment and have a commitment to destroy others and to castigate the other, so to speak, uh, put quotes around the word other. So I think those that personal background and my That I grew up in led me to be committed to wanting to do something better in the world. So all those years I spent in private practice, I was just being greedy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's very refreshing to hear. And I think it's important to remind everyone that government does and can help. Um, so I guess with that, let's get into the whole discussion about asylum, Mm -hmm, um, and start talking about, you know, I guess explaining what it is and why it's such an important part of the immigration laws.
2: So asylum is one part of the immigration law and without getting too deeply into the legalistic weeds of all of this, um, let's sort of turn back to post-World War II, um, The world had just gone through this trauma and had millions of refugees uh, on a torn continent, Europe. Um, And what are we going to do? How are we going to address these problems of dislocation? And so the United Nations came up with uh, a convention uh, of what it intended to address in 1951. Um, there was a protocol that was enacted to, uh, by the UN in 1968, and the United States signed on to that protocol and said, yes, we'll be a part of this. Uh, fast forward 12 years to 1980, and the United States passes uh, the Refugee Act of 1980. And that's really where um, all of our domestic law um, now mirrors the international law. There were some minor tweaks here and there where we didn't adopt every piece of the uh, language of the uh, 51 Convention and 68 Protocol, but certainly uh, the major thrust of that. And uh, so we have now been living with the Immigration Act of 1980 for nearly 43 years, and all of our decisions – uh, both by immigration courts and by the, the federal courts and of course the Supreme Court is part of the federal courts um, as well as the regulations that are promulgated under that nineteen are, are all promulgated under that 1980 Act. That's really what drives us. Um, uh, so that's where we are. Asylum and refugee have very particular legal meanings and so um Being a refugee, we can think about a lot of different people who are refugees, and we have a colloquial way of talking about that. You know, you see refugees around the world. Um, They're fleeing violence, they're fleeing war. We talk about them as refugees. But in the context of the Refugee Act of 1980, uh, we mean something particular. And what we mean by that is somebody who has either been persecuted or has a well-founded fear of persecution, that is something that might happen in the future, on account of or because of their race, their religion, their nationality, their political opinion, or their membership in a particular social group. So when we talk about refugee, and refugee is somebody outside the United States wanting to come in, an asylum, or a asylee applicant is somebody who's in the United States and seeks the protection of the Refugee Act of 1980.
0: Okay. And, um, wow, that was just a flashback from your class. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Catherine,
2: you've taken two classes with me. You've (laughs) suffered with me twice.
0: Um, So why do you think that it's important for people in the United States to care about— Asylum, Because I think if I wasn't in law school, if I hadn't taken your class and been involved in the Federal Litigation and Appeals Clinic, I might not even know what asylum is. Um, And I think that's a big problem is that people don't know. Why do you think it's important for people to know?
2: Well, first of all, first and foremost, we are a country of laws. And we, this country, through Congress, And the president in 1980 signed into law the Refugee Act of 1980. And this is our our legal commitment. Um, Now, if Congress tomorrow says, you know what, we're tired of that commitment, um, they can repeal that law. Um, But first and foremost, this is our – we made this commitment. We made this bond with the rest of the world, that we were, had a certain view toward helping people who are fleeing persecution. Um, so that's the legal point of view. We can also talk about the, the moral point of view. Um, why do I think it's important? I think the world, in many ways, is a small place, and we have a commitment. To help people who are less fortunate than ourselves. We have a commitment to help people who um, are fleeing for life and liberty. The very principles upon which our country was founded, liberty. Um, Don't we owe some responsibility to be a place where those who seek liberty from unjust harm, that is harm predicated on race, religion, nationality, political opinion, social group membership, the things that are invidious, um, don't we owe those folks, those people, some measure of uh, protection, particularly when we are the wealthiest country in the world? That sort of a, that is very much a moral, uh, values based, judgment, that I adhere to. Um, you know, I think, um, I think a lot of people would agree with that. Uh, what they might disagree with is, okay, but how much help?
0: Right. Yeah, I definitely agree with that.
1: Me um, too.
0: <laughs> so. In general, talking about asylum, people are fleeing persecution. They come to the United States. Um, can we talk a little bit about how domestic violence relates to asylum claims? Can it typically be used as a basis for asylum?
2: So this is a raging debate in, in immigration and asylum law for 25 years. Um, So I'll give, again, a quick thumbnail sketch of this, which was going back into the mid to later 90s, uh, 97, 98, 96. I can't remember the exact dates. Um, But there was was litigation that under a case called Matter of RA um, that was brought to the Board of Immigration Appeals that said this woman was harmed by her husband. It was a Guatemalan case. And in the culture of Guatemala, it is customary. I mean it's usual in the context that the the police don't help. Um, And I think her husband was actually a member of the police or connected to the police in some way or the military. Um, And so she had been brutalized and feared returning – Uh, to Guatemala because her husband would continue to brutalize her. Um, That was unsuccessful at the Board of Immigration Appeals, largely because the board felt that this is a private harm. This is between um, one person and another person, a husband and a wife. Uh, But the point being that asylum law, refugee law, does not protect private harms. I mean, the same way that uh, somebody who has maybe held up a gunpoint and money stolen from them, and that's all that happened, that's a private harm. And our, our asylum laws don't protect that person. Uh, it's terrible, um, but we don't extend protection that far. It has to be on account of race, religion, nationality, political opinion, social group. And so the... Um, people who were litigating that said, well, this is a social group case. This is not just a private harm. There's something more going on here in the society of Guatemala. Um, And so uh, that litigation kicked around for many years. Um, The the attorney general vacated it under his particular powers to do so. Uh, They were going to write regulations about it. It never – The regulations never got written. New administration came in. It changed without, again, going into the ups and downs of this litigation. Ultimately, it got sent back to the immigration judge on the case. And in a non-presidential decision, that judge granted asylum. And so that's where things kind of lay for a few years until 2014 when the Board of Immigration Appeals said, you know, this is a cognizable claim. This is a social group. Um, And based on that, um, we started seeing, and at that point I was a judge, and so that actually as a judge clarified things for me because I didn't have to – worry that it was going to be reversed, that I was applying the law in a correct fashion. That's what trial judges do. They have to look to the higher courts and apply the law. And the law, when the law is murky, uh, then it's much more complicated work for a trial court. Um, But here the board said, no, this is cognizable. This is a claim that lies, and it lies because it meets the definition of social group. And that's where we stood until 2018 when a new attorney general took over, uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, and he essentially reversed that 2014 decision. But the story's not over because then a new attorney general took over, (laughs) Merrick Garland, and he vacated Attorney General Sessions' decision that reversed the 2014 decision. So we're sort of back at where we were in 2014. Um, it all turns on what is a social group and if the social group is cognizable. So if we want to talk a little bit about that, we can. I'll try to distill it.
0: Yeah, I mean, political... (laughs) or The social group area of asylum law contains so much, and I think it's, like, the trickiest argument to make as an attorney um, for an asylum case. But I guess... Uh, we took a look at your record before you sat down here it's <laughs> online and we saw that the majority of the cases that you tried in your career were um, Guatemalan cases.
2: There was a, a lot we have a lot of Guatemalan cases in Philadelphia.
0: Did you see a number of domestic violence I cases? Did. I did And so what sort of evidence do you look for um, in those cases when somebody's trying to establish that, Women um, from Guatemala who are experiencing domestic violence are a social group that deserves protection.
2: Um, so the, the first thing we look at in, in any asylum case is I have to assess the credibility of of the person that's testifying. So if the person I find to be credible, that is believable, um, and there are various tools that judges use. And here's where immigration court maybe differs a little bit from civil or criminal courts where a judge in those circumstances could simply say, I don't believe that person, um, almost in a visceral fashion. Uh, Immigration judges, when they say they do not believe a witness, have to explain why. They have to articulate, you know, uh, say things like... um, Their prior statement was inconsistent in significant fashion, not just on minor details. Uh, You know, I have to really look at some objective indicators of credibility. So once I make a determination the person is credible, the next question is, is the social group that's been presented to the court a viable one? Um, And for that... um, it meet, has to meet three criteria. Uh, first, are the characteristics immutable? That is, something that cannot be changed. Second, is the social group particular? In other words, um, are the characteristics defined in the social group objective? You know, they do not change. Let me give you a quick example. If you say wealthy Guatemalans... That's really subjective because wealth is a moving target. Um, whereas, if you say Guatemalan women, for instance, you know I mean, we can argue about whether that's too big a group. But you know, we but the, but the terms Guatemalan women, um, both characteristics, both of being a nationality, is unchangeable. Being female is we think of as unchangeable. I know that, uh, that, in fact, gender is changeable. However, it is a matter of conscience whether or not to change gender. And therefore, um, it is uh, a particular and immutable characteristic. Because when we talk about immutability, it's not just that the characteristics are immutable. It can also be something that a person should not have to change as a matter of conscience. So Guatemalan women, we have a pretty good idea of of the universe of that, what the outer boundaries of that group are. And finally, it has to be something that's socially distinct. That is, does Guatemalan society view this as a group? Um, So when we look at the kinds of social groups that are raised for Uh, Guatemalan women who are fleeing domestic violence, uh, a social group that might come up would be something like Guatemalan women in intimate relationships who cannot leave those relationships. Um, And so those are characteristics that are clear. We know Guatemalan and we know women. They're involved in an intimate relationship. We know what that means. And the fact of their inability to leave, um, the universe of what that involves um, is also pretty clear. Uh, Those characteristics are also immutable. And finally, does Guatemalan society look at that grouping as a particular and distinct subset of Guatemalan society? And there's a lot of evidence that shows that um, Guatemalan society does view that as a subset within the context of Guatemala. So I would find that if a woman testified about uh, her past abuse, um, that given the state of law as it is now, that that would be a very viable claim, you know. And I ruled in a number of occasions that it was.
1: That's very interesting. And I guess I have questions about the difficulties that surround asylees who try to bring this type of claim. And then also if you could speak on some difficulties that you faced as an immigration judge.
2: Sure. So first, the difficulty in bringing that kind of claim um, involves putting together effective country conditions, not just the country conditions of Guatemala that you can get from a, let's say, a Department of State report. Um, That's not going to get into the weeds enough for a judge to make a decision. Uh, There really needs to be enough evidence in every case uh, that shows that that, that this group is, let's say, socially distinct and is particular and has immutable characteristics. In other words, the fact that somebody proved that in a case I heard three weeks ago doesn't bleed into the case that's in front of me today. The fact that I said, oh, yes, this is a cognizable social group in a prior case because the record in front of me then really proved that though that category is socially distinct, um, then that doesn't help the person in front of me today. They have to prove their own case. Uh, That's a reflection of the fact that this whole social group thing is very fact-driven. It's really the facts on the ground in the country that it takes place in. So, for instance, with regard to a woman who wants to bring that kind of claim, um, she needs to show that this group is socially distinct. How would you prove that? I mean, how would you prove that there is um, a particular subset of women as part of society who who are involved in intimate relationships and who cannot leave the relationship? Well, you might prove that by showing uh, that there are laws enacted for protection of, 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 of women in, in relation to domestic violence laws, that would infer that there's a problem um, for, for women in that circumstance. You might show that there are some shelters um, uh, that uh, provide services. Uh, uh, those kinds of things are a basis from which the court can then infer the existence of that group. And that's what I mean by really getting into the weeds. There really needs to be some kind of evidence. Sometimes there, there are a number of expert reports that are floating around that I would see. Sometimes the same expert reports would be submitted in different cases. That's fine. You know, these are good expert reports um, produced by uh, – uh, there's a center for – uh, immigration and Gender Studies, I think that maybe I have the title wrong, at a University of California, Hastings College of Law. And they do great work and they have a number of uh, expert reports that get routine, uh, almost routinely submitted. And that's great because that gives me guidance, gives a judge guidance um, to say, yes, the facts on the ground are such that um, there's no protection for women or insufficient protection, I should say, not no, but there's inadequate protection for women who are victims of domestic violence. And that um, this is a societal problem. And so that it's more than just one, it's more than just a private claim between two people. It's a societal problem. And that's how you get to the social group stage.
0: Um, that I guess leads me to my next question about these types of claims so we know in the United States that domestic violence is experienced by men and women at almost the same rate Um, and so I guess it tracks that it's possibly happening in other countries in a country like Guatemala where there's um, just kind of even more barriers for men seeking help based on the culture and the society. Um, what have you ever, well, I guess it's like a two part question. Have you ever had a case of a male domestic uh, violence survivor seeking asylum? Um, and what are some specific challenges that men would face? Would it um, even though it's likely an issue, it might not be recognized by the society. So does, do those cases kind of default into it being like, oh, well, this is just a private matter?
2: So I'll answer the first party question first, which is, no, I've never had that kind of case because um, that's easy. So in order to answer the question of whether a man could bring an asylum claim, uh, based on domestic violence, I think we have to go back to looking at the definition of social group because the, all of these cases fall under social group. Remember, it's race, religion, nationality, political opinion, membership in a particular social group. Domestic violence falls under social group that doesn't fit anywhere else. Um, and as I said before, this is really driven by the facts on the ground. Uh, the fact When I say facts on the ground, I mean the facts of that country. So we get a lot of cases out of—I saw cases out of uh, El Salvador, Mexico, Honduras, Brazil that were women victims of domestic violence. Um, I saw that because the facts on the ground were such that one could—an uh, attorney could craft a social group that was cognizable— um, that said, yes, this is more than just a private dispute. This is a reflection of an underlying societal problem to the point where society says, yes, women in this situation are a subset of overall um, our overall society women who are—and you can't say victimized. That gets into a whole other issue with regard to defining social groups, which I'll touch on in a moment. So the short answer is if there is a society where men can be victimized uh, or can be viewed as um, members of social groups, where the they get persecuted on account of that social group, they could be. I haven't seen it, largely because, certainly, the countries that I saw most readily are ones where women uh, struggle for um, societal acceptance and uh, and um, struggle against. Uh, uh, a certain level of – and this I'm quoting some of the – the quoting the research at the experts that I see uh, – that I saw before me, uh, the, the, the label of machismo that would come out as, as sort of a product of um, uh, those societies and then reflect in there being a social group that put women at the core of it. Um, again, this is based on evidence that I would see.
1: Now, just like a side question to that, do you think it's important for there to be more awareness around male victims um, in the sense of, you know, domestic violence so that if one were to bring a claim in the future, there is some sort of social group that we can then fall back on?
2: I I think wherever people are harmed, wherever people are vulnerable, that our antenna should go up. And if there are societies where men don't have the kinds of protection that uh, they should have, where any said male or female, and if it's on account of being m- men in certain kinds of circumstances, and they don't have protection, and they are being harmed because of their being in a social group or a group or a subset of society, then we should then they should be offered that the uh, protection of the asylum law um, guarantees. Right. Um, and if it's in the context of domestic violence. So be it. Uh, you know, one of the things, you know, you looked at my record. So I did a lot of Guatemalan cases and a lot of Central American cases, particularly over the last. Five, six years that I was on the bench. Um, One of the cases that I saw a lot of were men, not so much victims of domestic violence, but of gang recruitment because of the proliferations of gangs in largely Central America, what they call the Northern Triangle, Honduras, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. And so I, I heard a lot of those cases and really had to struggle with Is that a social – is there a social group there um, that I can – that can be adequately articulated um, to offer the protection of these individuals? Because they were being – some of the the crimes against these young men, in particular young men, were horrific um, because they simply didn't want to um, join violent criminal gangs.
1: Right. So I know there's a lot of debate around asylum generally, um, just about how, you know, asylum is a bedrock principle that's protected by federal law. um, But there's a lot of conviction for one way saying that we should make it harder for people to legally access the United States and then a also lot of talk about that. Yes. Yeah. Right. And then how there's a lot of conviction around people saying that we should expand our borders and just make it a lot easier for people to seek asylum mm-hmm. in the United States. And I know recently President Biden announced a new rule uh, regarding asylum seekers that would severely limit a person's ability to seek asylum if they entered the United States illegally. Um, and we just wanted to know your thoughts on that.
2: So the new rule, which I, I took a read through, um, on the re- new regulations and the and the um, and the rationale for it that's in the federal register as they required to promulgate that, and it runs about a hundred pages, multiple columns per page. It's quite lengthy with a lot of justification, but in essence, the the new re- new regulation to take effect when the uh, title 42 expires on May 11th is uh, that individuals who enter the United States illegally will have a rebuttable presumption to show that they uh, w- that they applied for asylum in one of the other countries that they passed through. Um, I understand why the Biden administration is, is doing that. Um, I think it's truly wrongheaded. I think it violates our commitment uh, under international law and our own laws. Again, the Refugee Act of 1980. Congress wants to repeal that or modify it. Then we'll have a new law to deal with. Um, I may not agree with it morally but it, or values-wise, but that's it. This is the problem. Or that I say, I mean, one of the core problems of this the statute provides for something called safe third country um, uh, refuge. And that is if the United States finds that a country has an effective asylum process and enters into either a, uh, enters into a multilateral or a bilateral agreement with that country then a person who passes through that country and does not access that asylum program can be barred from seeking asylum in the United States so my view is very simple there's a process in place congress enacted that, that the uh, rule of regulation that uh, the Biden administration has proposed is – and all regulations have to be grounded in the statute. Well, this is a regulation that contradicts the statute. Uh, So I think it is on very unfirm ground, infirm ground uh, legally – they uh, – the prior administration, the Trump administration, tried something very similar. And they just – but they did it as a – if you don't ask for asylum in, in one of those countries that you pass through, then you're barred from asylum in the United States. And that was struck down. Um, the Biden administration is trying to do it by use of a rebuttable presumption. Um, I, I don't think it survives even as a rebuttable presumption. Uh, I don't think it should survive. The thing I want people to be aware of with regard to asylum is that we are an immensely wealthy country, and we have a lot of space. You know, I remember President Trump saying something effective at one of his rallies, you know, we're, we're, we're closed. We don't have room. Well, he's flat out wrong. We have plenty of room. It's a huge country with, with many habitable areas. And there are two things I want to remind people of. One. In 2015, the country of Germany, which is one quarter our size, about 80 million people, took in 1.2 million Syrian refugees in one year. Angela Merkel said simply, we can do this. She proved in a reversal of what had happened 70 to 80 years before, Germany to be, at that moment, the moral center of the Western world. We, On those numbers, four times as large, we should take in close to 5 million, and we're nowhere near that. So I would suggest that if Germany could take in 1.2 million in 2015, we can take in a lot more than we have, number one. Number two, Poland, in a year racked by its neighbor going to war in Ukraine, a country of about 30 million people, has taken in a million and a half refugees. Poland, f- not as rich as Germany, far less rich than us, one-tenth our size, taking in a million and a half refugees. So... Let's keep the border issue in perspective. Yes, it's a problem. Yes, there are a lot of people at the border clamoring to get in to apply for asylum. Yes, the the immigration courts are overloaded. Uh, They now have a backlog of 2.1 million cases. Uh, They're going to hire more judges. They'll never litigate their way out of this. I mean, they keep thinking... Let's 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 you know hire more judges. They don't hire enough staff. Um, you know, when when I when I started as a, as a judge, um, there were four judges, about nine or ten staff, including supervisors, and about five thousand cases in Philadelphia. When I left, there were seven judges, about twenty staff, twenty two staff, something like that, forty two thousand five hundred cases. Wow. So. Case load up eight times, staffing up, maybe double, judges, maybe double. The it, it, it's it's an insurmountable problem, and there's insufficient support staff. Hiring judges by itself doesn't do it. You need adequate support staff. Eoir refuses to adequately support the judges, um, and I feel badly for them. I mean, they're just buried. It's horrible, um, but people still want to become judges. So there you go. But at any rate, so that's the perspective I want to give to it. I think that the it's wrongheaded and I think that uh, uh, I'm disappointed in President Biden's initiative in this because I really believe that he would be better at the border than the prior administration. And in some ways he is. He's not as overtly cruel. You know, like family separation, you know, was the cruelty was the point, I think is the title of the famous Atlantic article, Atlantic magazine article. And I think he is not being overtly cruel, but he's trying to figure out a politically viable solution for a mass of people at the border. And I wish he would do what Angela Merkel did.
0: Yeah, I do, too. And I think one thing that really frustrates me is just how much, especially we're coming up on the on an election year how much the lives of immigrants become politicized and i'm wondering if you could speak to how the politicizing of immigration policies in the united states affects real people in the courtroom
2: that's a tough question <laughs> because there's so many different ways to look at it first of all i guess the premises we should all We shouldn't be political in the courtroom, right? I mean courtrooms are supposed to be devoid of politics. Um, It should just be the facts of the law. Um, But of course we know that's not true from the Supreme Court on down. Um, So I think that the politics affects the courtroom in immigration court this way. The judges that I know, and I don't know that this is across the country, because I think things vary in different regions. <clears throat> and if you look at the um, if you look at the grant rates for asylum, for instance, in Houston versus New York or Philadelphia, you see the grant rates in Houston are hovering the teens, and in Philadelphia. Uh, they are maybe, uh, you know, 30 to 40 to 45 percent depending upon the judge. Um, so you have that. So, but, but I can't sort of comment that that's politically driven. What I will say is this. There are some structural issues within the immigration court system that reflect politics. The first and most important one is the ability of the attorney general to grab a case and rewrite the law. Um, and then all of a sudden, all the judges who sit below are duty-bound to apply the law. No question in my mind that uh, Attorney General Sessions sought to rewrite the law on asylum for political reasons. He was an avowed, uh, he campaigned as, uh, uh, as an avowed restrictionist on the immigration on asylum, and he issued matter of AB, which sought to gut domestic violence as a basis for asylum. And Indicta basically said gang-based cases are not a valid basis for asylum. Then the judges are bound to apply that. But that was a highly political decision. There's no question it was driven by Attorney General uh, Sessions' politics. And the result was a decision that uh, led—forced judges to deny claims they might have granted under prior, prior law. Uh, the other is regulations that are politically driven, and we see that going on now. Um, we saw it under the Trump administration. Most of the, Many of those regulations never were effective, but they were really—they um, drafted a number, particularly toward the end of the administration— um, that were really sought to restrict the ability to uh, apply asylum law. Um, and those were political decisions to, to try to put in very restrictive um, uh, regulations to drive down the ability to grant asylum, which would then hopefully, in their view, tr- trickle down and force people to say, well, what's the point of going to uh, Try to try to get in the United States, and and apply for asylum because it will be denied.
1: Right, that kind of brings me to my next question. So, on January fifth, the administration um, made a deal with Mexico that they would send back across the border immigrants who came illegally from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, and they would send back thirty thousand of them per month. Mm-hmm. Um, in the weeks following that announcement. 97% of the immigrants who are coming from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela dropped. Um, so my question for you is if this were to pass, this regulation, how do you see this affecting those who are seeking asylum um, under those grounds, or just generally, I guess? I
2: think that I, th- I think people will still come. I think people will still come because the conditions in some of those countries are so bad. That they view it as having no choice; they've got to try to come. They try to get out, and, and that, of course, is the fundamental fallacy in all of this. That you know, this idea that we can deter their behavior by saying they're not going to get uh, uh, asylum—it's not going to work. Uh, now, maybe it'll affect it at the margin somewhat. Maybe it'll reduce some of the numbers, but people will still come. People are still coming.
0: One thing that I thought was really interesting is that um, the people who are seeking asylum like these rules aren't going to deter them because it's a choice between life or death. Like people aren't just coming to the United States illegally to I think the perception is um, people who don't understand or don't work with immigrant populations think people just come to like steal our jobs or have like an easy life, but that's really not what these people are doing. So
2: I I, I think that that gets at something that's really important is to understand what's really driving, particularly immigration within the Western world, you know, sort of South America, Central America, Mexico. Um, There are a couple of things I think that go on. You know, the model used to be, oh, Mexicans, because that was a large number of folks that were coming in across the southern border, they just want to come here to work and make money. Um, To the extent that that was true, it's no longer true. It's not that those are not some of the people that they're coming here for a better life. That certainly happens. But there are a lot of people who are coming to the United States um, across the southern border because of the great instability. And insecurity in their country, and that in their countries, I should say, um, and a, there's a number of things going on for that. One is the rise of criminal gangs, and we see that largely in the Northern Triangle. We're seeing it now in Haiti. Um, we're seeing a lot of crime in Brazil. Um, so there's that, you know. And the countries are really those countries are unstable in the sense that they're not able to protect their citizens from the societal problems. The other thing that's happening is is climate. Uh, Areas that used to be fertile and provided a lifestyle and a living for uh, farming um, because of climate change are no longer so productive. And so people are, to that extent, to that extent, it's economic. But if we look at climate change, you know, remember the United States is, because of its modern economy, is one of the largest producers of greenhouse gases. So we're in effect culpable for climate change, more so than the people in those countries. And now they're looking for an opportunity to, to have better lives. So um, and their countries are not addressing that internal societal dislocation because of climate change. They're, those are poorer countries. They, they can't address that or they're not addressing that they're, for whatever reason. So we're seeing people coming because of violence that they fear, unstable lifestyles, um, you know, li- unstable um, societies, climate change and also plain, I want to have a better life for my kids and myself. So it's a myriad of factors. And the idea that we're going to stop that by some regulations that make it more difficult to get asylum, um, I think is a fool's errand.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I also think that these people who are risking everything to come to the United States for a chance at life um, deserve better than being talked about by politicians and used for cheap political points
2: I think that's one of the problems – and and this is where my disappointment with the Biden administration is is because I know that they have to face the political reality of every night on Fox News screaming about the crisis at the border and its completely open borders, which of course I would say is false on both occasions. It's not a crisis. It's a problem. And no, the borders aren't open. Um, but imposing restrictions on asylum isn't going to solve it. Um, you know, the other thing that's part of this program, this new regulation, is that people who uh, can apply for asylum or can apply um, for admission where they can seek asylum on a new app, a CBP app. Um, and, you know, you're talking about a population that may or may not have access to smartphones. Some of them do, you know, no question. Um but my experience with government and I worked for government for not quite 12 years federal government is that the one thing that they do very badly is tech so i just look at this and i'm waiting for that you know that you know people go on to this app and they can't get anywhere and now they're parked in mexico and that's the other problem that's been happening over the last several years is that people park in Mexico waiting to come in um, in line and they're left at the mercies of uh, extortionists, criminals? I mean, at the very least, we should be setting up a, a U.N.-sponsored refugee camp in northern Mexico. And we should be assisting with that. It shouldn't just fall on the UN or Mexico. If we're going to have all these people coming and we're not going to let them in and they're going to have to wait in line on a CBP app, then let's have a clean, safe location for them, not encampments where they are victimized further for crime, of crime. So, uh, But again, we haven't thought about that. And I think to a certain extent, it's like we don't want to make it too comfortable because that will encourage more people to come. And I think they're coming anyway.
0: It's funny to think of like a, a refugee camp as being more comfortable for somebody.
2: But you know, it's in contrast to what's happening now, which is there's you know, makeshift encampments um, done by um, non-profits. And it's exactly that. It's dangerous. They're, they are prey to criminals and extortionists and, and to at least offer them that level of protection.
1: Now you said that you were disappointed in the Biden administration up to this point regarding immigration and what they're proposing, and I share that sentiment with you. So I guess my question for you is, what policy changes would you like to see um, in immigration law?
2: I would like us to um, welcome immigrants more openly. Um, I think we can do that in a number of ways. So I'm going to touch on the asylum at the end, but. I think one of the biggest problems right now is uh, huge backlogs in processing people for legitimate um, um, visa changes, uh, naturalization. Uh, Those should be going – issuing employment authorizations. I mean people came from uh, Afghanistan two years ago and they got employment authorization – um, or a year and a half ago, and their employment authorizations are, are going to run out and they've re-applied, they've applied for new employment authorizations. and because of backlogs, they're not getting them. And that's going to cause great hardship. And there's no reason for that. I mean, there's no reason why uh, we can't, as a government, um, res- be responsive uh, to, these, to the people who have relied, who we rescued from Afghanistan who need employment authorization, um, who don't want to work without it. We don't want them to work without it. So I think the whole system has become clogged. Um, We should expand the number of H-1B visas available um, so that we can uh, attract high-quality workers in this country who want to be here, who want to contribute to our economy, and instead are forced to do some some are forced to leave, and some are forced to do incredible dances as to how they can change their pattern, as to as to how they can change their status, as to asylum. I don't really know. Uh, I think the the solutions are really really hard to, to fathom. But I don't think. But I think the solutions that have been proposed are wrong. Uh, I think they they don't reflect the values of the United States and certainly don't reflect the law, the Refugee Act of 1980. Um, Maybe what we should have is large processing centers um, on the southern border where we welcome people, uh, we uh, screen people for responsibly being located elsewhere in the country, you know, if they've got family or whatever. Those that we're unsure of, we can keep perhaps in a Uh, more in a camp-like setting for a period of time, let's say no more than 60 or 90 days, so it's time limited, Um, allow them to start putting together asylum applications. Um, That may be a solution. One of the things the United States did back in 1980 um, was we were confronted with the Mariel Boatlift. And that was in a period of about six weeks. We had 125,000 people from Cuba um, on our shores. And we put those folks in military bases. So Maybe not the nicest environment, but safe, clean, provided housing, food, um, structure. And then these folks were interviewed over time. And the ones that were not at risk, ones that have places to go, they were released on what we call parole, that is permission to be physically in the United States even if they've not been legally admitted. Um, And I would say we could do the same thing with uh, the crush of people at the border, uh, that we could perhaps do something along those lines um, and really mobilize a lot of staff to – make sure that nobody sits in those camps uh, those that secure secure location for more than let's say 60 or 90 days and we kind of do our due diligence and and then process people into the community um, where they can uh, apply for asylum
0: yeah I think those are all really great options um, and I wish that we could get and I'm going administration that's willing to actually think about these problems big picture instead of just trying to slap a band-aid on it
2: i i, I agree and i think one of the problems is that uh, president biden is you know ha- is trying to walk a line between being humane because i think he is a person who looks for humane solutions and also dealing with the the politics of it you know because you've got Fox News screaming every night the crisis at the border um, and so he's got to do, do he feel I guess he feels he has to do something you know President Obama tried to do that I mean, what he you know he did the I'm going to be tough in immigration and then what he was going to be tough at the border and so he got his you know his street cred on that and then the other goal was and then I want to pass a comprehensive immigration reform. And I think he believed that if he could show he was going to be tough at the border and tough on immigration and there was one congressman who called him the deporter in chief because so many people got deported, that he could get a better law passed, a real comprehensive immigration reform bill passed. And he actually got it passed the Senate. You know, the Senate, was 67, 68 votes passed uh, about 10 years ago. Uh, a, a pretty good immigration, overall immigration bill. The problem was it died in the House. They didn't even consider it, didn't even go on the floor. So.
0: That's unfortunate.
2: Yeah,
0: I mean. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. We want to wrap it up with one final question. Okay. Do you have any advice for young... Attorneys who may be thinking about pursuing a career in immigration law.
2: So my favorite answer to that is, don't do it.
1: Oh.
0: <laughs> but
2: that's only a partial answer. I encourage, and I've I've said this to young lawyers into law school classes. I, you know, as as you know, I, I teach. I have for fifteen years taught courses uh, at an adjunct level at Drexel, and I've also taught at Villanova before that, and. Um I think it's important for young immigration lawyers to have a sense of other areas of law as well, because immigration law can bring in, you know, family law, criminal law, administrative law, um, litigation. And so I encourage young lawyers to, Get a clerkship, not an immigration court clerkship. I mean, fine if you want to, but you know, get a clerkship in a in in a, a court of general jurisdiction. Um, go become a public defender. Go do domestic relations. Uh, go do some business litigation. Do something else for a little bit, so you're grounded in some other areas. I mean, for instance, if if you want to do business immigration law, wow, if you've if you've worked. Uh, at a firm that does some business-related things, you have a leg up on people. So I think it's important to have some other experience and then dive into immigration. Um, That piece of advice usually goes over like a lead balloon. Uh, um, So I would just say that the options for going into immigration law are um, uh, – are out there. Um, there are nonprofits that are always looking for people. Um, Philadelphia has a couple of really wonderful nonprofits. Uh, you know, HIAS, I was on the board of directors and, and president of the board of uh, directors of HIAS uh, for a dozen years. Um, the Nationality Services Center. Um, there are some other places that do great, great work. Um, Esperanza. Um, Catholic Social Services, they all do great, great work uh, on behalf of immigrants. So, you know, that's a nonprofit world. There are opportunities in the court to become a a, a law clerk for the immigration court or to the Board of Immigration Appeals. Um, uh, Department of Homeland Security is always looking for trial attorneys. um, And you could, you know prosecute cases. But even if you're prosecuting a case, you know, I mean, certainly my experience with DHS prosecutors was that some of them were breathing fire and and wanted to send everybody back to whatever country they came from. And there were some who had a sense of judgment um, and understood that sometimes, you know, cases should be granted and were fine with it. Um, And so you have a chance to weigh in and exercise some discretion there. Um, and then there are some wonderful law firms in and around Philadelphia, and of course, you know, across the country um, where um, those opportunities may arise. The difference between, let's say, immigration firm and a large firm um, is that immigration firms will look around and they'll say, gee, we have a lot of business and we're projecting we're gonna have more, we better put out an ad and hire somebody in the next month, as opposed to uh, big law, which says we're going to want ten or fifteen new associates next year, next fall. So let's start interviewing this fall. That that doesn't happen in the immigration world. You know, you've got to kind of be at the right place at the right time when there's a an ad posted or a need you know, goes up for uh, for help. Um, the immigration court law clerks are a year ahead, so you apply in the fall and you start in the fall. Um, um, DHS, I think, is a constant – they have constant needs. And, you know, you don't have to stay in Philadelphia. There are all these places. They have opportunities around the country. So if are places you want to experience living in, more power to you. So um, – but I do encourage people, you know, get some other kind of experience and mm-hmm. then plunge into immigration law. Okay?
1: Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You're very
2: welcome. Thank you for uh, letting me talk and uh, be part of this.
1: Thank you for listening to another episode of In the Shadows, where we shed light on a system failing in the shadows. We just had a lovely conversation with Judge Morley, where we talked about domestic violence as a basis for an asylum claim for immigrants who have fled abusive situations in their home country. We learned about the difficulties that asylum seekers face, as well as some of the policy concerns that surround these migrants. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. If you live in Pennsylvania, you can reach out to the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence at PCADV.org. Further, if you are seeking legal aid to help with an asylum claim, you can call HIAS at one 800 442 7714. And as always, these resources will be listed in our episode summary. We'll see you next week.